seven, eight, and nine. If you did that, you're an outstanding student. For the rest of you, shame on you. Um, but you read ahead for next week, actually, because I was studying, getting ready for next week, and I thought to myself, hey, Tiffany probably needs to tell people to read all of this section, and that's for next week. Um, this week, we're going to talk about a different story, so you're ahead. Um, congratulations. So we're going to do um, this story today, John chapter 6. Hey, we have screens. John chapter 6, starting in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Calpurnium. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And the next day, the crowd that stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boat and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. It was a dark and stormy night. See, like 10 minutes ago would have been the perfect time to start this sermon, right? It was a dark and stormy night. Thanks. <laughs> but this line is a line from a book, Edward, what's his name? Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote the novel Paul Clifford in 1930, and it's become, um, in our society, in our culture, maybe one of the most cliches, um, cliche lines around. Um, it was a dark and stormy night, and the subject of many Um, parodies. So many um, books and so many stories have begun this way ever since. And I was thinking about through some of my favorite opening lines to books or novels. Um, One, you might remember, Call Me Ishmael. Anyone know what book? Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melville, um, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now, every high school student in here, you at least read that far into the book. (laughs) Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And then, um, I think maybe my favorite line, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. 
And, of course, C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Trader. These lines that open these novels are are so famous. And I think the, the line, it was a dark and stormy night, fits the story that we enter into so well. It it was a dark and stormy night, and Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. And he's on the west or the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And one of the things, if you look back in the story to chapter 6, remember, John is trying to point you towards all these signs. Signs pointing to Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Lord. And one of the things that he mentions very early in this story in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, is that Jesus was at the Sea of Galilee, but John throws in a note, because no other place in Scripture talks about this, but it says, also called the Sea of Tiberias. It's interesting that you read all these accounts of Jesus at the Sea of Galilee, and you probably never realize, well, this is also called the Sea of Tiberias. Well, why was it called the Sea of Tiberias? It was called the Sea of Tiberias because around the year 20 AD, there was a city built right on the eastern shore south of Calpurnium called Tiberias. It was named for the emperor at the time, Tiberius Caesar, um, the grandson of Julius Caesar. And This city, Tiberias, was built as a state-of-the-art city right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and it was built by Herod the Great. It was this state-of-the-art city. It was a monument basically set up to worship the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. And so this story communicates a lot to us about the identity of Jesus, specifically Jesus as Lord. Because the claim at the time was it was Caesar who was Lord. And so you have this city that is built as a tribute to Caesar. You have this lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is basically a large lake. It was about seven or eight miles across that was renamed from the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of Tiberias because you name everything in the kingdom, everything in the empire after the Roman emperor who is Caesar. And you have these disciples who are rowing in the night, going across the seven-mile journey across the Sea of Galilee to get to Capernaum, where Jesus has sent them. In all the other accounts, it says Jesus finishes the 5,000, feeding the 5,000, he sends them on across while he stays there to pray. And so Jesus is there, the boys are in the boat, and they're rowing across the sea, and they're confronted with this storm. It was a dark and stormy night. And in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this struggle, here comes Jesus walking on the water. Walking on not just the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Tiberias. Walking on the water, coming to them, Lord over all. The sea might be named for Tiberius, but it is Jesus who is the true Lord and master of the sea. And so Jesus walks on the water and he comes to the boat where the boys are rowing and they're 
they're doing their very best with the wind and the waves and the rain. And there's this struggle that is happening within the boat. There's this struggle to get where they're going. There, There is this struggle, and really that sets the story in some really significant light. Because there's the very literal side of the story where Jesus is Lord over the sea. But there's also this metaphorical side of the story where the boys in the boat are struggling against the wind and the waves doing their very best to make it. It was a dark and stormy night. The sea for the Jews was a different place. For the Phoenicians, for the Egyptians, even the Romans, they were a seafaring people. But for the Israelites, the sea was the abyss. It was the place of death. It is the reason when John writes Revelation, and not the same John who's writing the gospel, but John the Revelator, when he writes his Revelation, he says, there will be no more sea. Because for the Jews, this was the place of the abyss, it was the place of death, it was the place of destruction, the wind and the waves and the terror that came with it. And yet Jesus is Lord over it. And John, when he writes, he says, it was dark. And and remember, throughout this gospel, John is contrasting the light and the dark. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh and make its dwelling among us. And then skipping down towards the end of that first chapter, the light had shone into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And so John points out it is dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. By now, it was dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. See, that very metaphorical sense of the story relates probably really well to you and I in so many places. Have you ever been in the place of darkness where it felt Jesus had not yet joined you? The place of pain and hurt, the place of fear, where it feels like the darkness is closing in around you. And the darkness can be suffocating at times. And it feels like in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the trial that Jesus had not joined you. See, my guess is for most of you, you have been in a place that you could probably describe in much the same way that John is describing 
the boys in the boat. You see, the main character in the story, yes, is Jesus, who is Lord over the storm and Lord over the waters and the wind and the waves and the rain. But the spotlight in John's story is on the boys in the boat who are doing everything they can to row these seven miles across the sea. In the dark, in the wind, in the waves, and there's so much resistance coming at them, rowing with all they have, and it felt like Jesus had not yet joined them. You see, because my guess is in the storm that they lost sight of Jesus, who was there on the shore praying. But my guess is also that while they lost sight of Jesus in the storm, Jesus had not lost sight of them. And he comes walking to them on the water. And I love Mark's account of the story because Mark says they thought he was a ghost and Jesus, walking on the water, had thought about walking by. I mean, you you just imagine the story like, hey guys. And yet Jesus comes to them and they are frightened by it. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. And and I was thinking about the things that place us in the boat with the wind and the waves beating against us and beating us down. And I think one of them, so simply, is our sin. Our sin, our, our desire to be God. Our desire to be the sole provider in our life. Our desire to do it on our own. I mean, ultimately, that's what sin goes back to. It was the sin in the garden, and it's still our sins today. And we're really good at pointing out the sins outside of this place that we will never struggle with. We're not so good at admitting the sins that we struggle with every day. Our desire to be the sole provider of all our needs. I mean, that's what gluttony is. It's what pride is. It's what lust is. That every single sin that we struggle with goes back to that desire to be for ourselves, God. To provide for ourselves. And so many times we find that sin is what places us in the boat doing everything we can to go against the wind and the waves and beating against us and seeming to make no progress. But something else that places in the boat that's a little more difficult is the sin of others. You see, there's this lie that we tell, well, my sin only affects me. Why does it matter if I'm addicted to pornography? It only affects me. Why does it matter if I struggle with drugs? It only affects me. But but here's the truth. Your sin affects other people. Your sin 
can affect other people to the second and third and fourth generation. See, because some of you are still dealing with the sin of your parents. Because it affected you deeply. And they are dealing with what they had because of the sin of their parents. That that our sin does not just affect us, it affects others. And the problem is when other people's sin affects us and we're not the cause of it, it's a lot more difficult to deal with. Because when it's my deal, when it's my sin, I can at least own up to it. I can say it's my fault, it's the reason I'm there, but when it's someone else's, it's a little more difficult. And then there's a third reason that we get placed in the boat. And it's, I couldn't think of a better way to say it, but it's just because. I always hated when my mom gave me that answer. Why should I, because? But there, there is a really literal sense of that we are in a fallen and broken world. And there are times that things happen that are outside of our control. They're outside of our ability to fix. When I was interviewing for the job here, some of the shepherds from this church, I think it was Travis and Travis, wasn't it? The two Travises that came down to Cleburne. And they came down on the Sunday that I was supposed to preach. And they didn't get to hear me preach. Because the week previous to that, a tornado had hit Cleburne. And had completely devastated our, our city. And several homes of members were completely destroyed. And so we were in this mode of trying to help. And I didn't preach that morning. We, we spent time praying and, and reading psalms together and worshiping. But that event put our life on hold. And it left us at times in a dark place trying to figure out what we were going to do. Th- those times we find ourselves in the wind and the waves, we find ourselves with the boys in the boat. You see, the the storm has the ability, the capacity to do something amazing. It has the ability to instantaneously shrink your world. Have you ever noticed that? When you're in the storm, when you're in that dark place, it instantaneously shrinks your world. Because everything else that you were focused on just kind of becomes a blur. And the only thing you do think about is what's happening right in front of you. See, during that time, there was also a storm that was headed right for our house. And the the house we lived off of Highway 4, right outside of Cleburne, and we were watching the radar, and there was a storm, a huge, massive tornado that was headed straight for our house. And we had an old pier and beam house that was lifted up, and we didn't know what to do. It was undoubtedly a house that if that tornado hit, would not be left. And the tornado, when we realized it was coming at us, was about 
probably a mile or, or two from our house. And so we're watching the radar as it's coming toward us. And we're, we're praying and we're worrying about our kids and what's going to happen and what we're going to do and what's the best option. And we don't know where to go. And that storm turned. And it hit basically at an intersection on the county road we live on about a half a mile back towards Cleveland. And that storm that was doing so much damage everywhere else was headed right for us. You talk about something shrinking your world in a heartbeat. See, my guess is for some of you, you've been in the boat. And it has shrunk your world. And the only thing you could think of during that time, during that difficult place, was the storm. And in this story, John writes, But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid as Jesus approaches the boat. And remember we said last week, Exodus chapter 6 is completely full of these Exodus implications and exodus reminders and and callbacks. And we lose a little bit here in translation. Because when he says, it is I, the phrase in the Greek language is ego, I'm sorry, ego imi, which means quite literally, I am. It, It would be kind of the same construction as the Hebrew word hayah, which is translated in Exodus 3 when he Moses and God meet for the first time, and he says, I am that I am. John wants you to see this new Moses. Not just this Moses who has the power through God to part the waters, but this Moses who through God, the Word made flesh, who has the power to walk on the waters who has the ability, the power to come to you in the darkness of night, in the storms, and help you get to where you're going. Because as Jesus enters the boat, John points out that they're three or four miles into the journey, the seven-mile journey across the sea. He points out, then... They were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. It's almost as if, you know, three or four miles into this seven-mile journey, they finally give up trying their best and struggling and struggling and fighting and fighting and finally surrender everything over to Jesus, and then they're there. Because there's this this point where you can try and you can try and you can struggle, whether it's with our sin or the effects of someone else's sin in our life or the disaster that's happened, the, the loss, the addiction. You can struggle and you can struggle and struggle and not make any ground. And then all of a sudden you just make the decision to surrender it all to Jesus. And then it's like this, this moment of immediacy where you realize you're going to be okay. See, and I thought I could 
could find a story maybe to communicate that, but I thought it might be better to let someone else share their story. In two parts, um, a lot like we might think of Moses and his time in Egypt, and um, also when he was in the wilderness, um, and also of Job, his early years and later time in his life. But I believe my story starts um, when I was 22. And I made, met a man that was a very wonderful person, generous, kind, loving. I moved to Arizona to be with him, and about a year later, we were married. Joseph was not interested in church. Um, he had had a bad experience with Catholic church and um, he was not willing to attend church with me and I naively at the time before I married him did not realize how difficult that would make our marriage. We were married in October, and unfortunately, by, um, in March, my oldest brother passed away. And a month later, uh, my husband, Joseph, um, was in bed, sick with a cold, wouldn't, couldn't even get out of bed. And so we went to the doctors and after many tests and um, results and things, um, I found out he was in renal failure and was put on dialysis right away. That lasted for four or five months. Fortunately, his brother was a match so we went through and he had the kidney transplant he was doing well for several years um, I'd say five or six years but unfortunately it one day he was picking up a gallon of milk from the back of his truck and he felt a pop on his arm and again many doctors and tests and diagnoses later come to find out that he had several masses in his body cancer um, they were on his sternum and his spine. He went through a series of radiation. Um, we even did some clinical trials in Tucson to no avail. 
when got the diagnosis that he was terminal. The the doctors wouldn't really give a time frame for that and um, how long he had to live. But I just remember feeling so alone and just not sure when this would all come to an end it was so difficult I remember going through the empty hallways of all the many hospitals and just screaming out to God in my heart asking him to help me in that. God was faithful. God sent a lot of people that would come and be spend time with him. And unbeknownst to me, they were studying him too. And in that time, he was baptized in our hot tub in the backyard. So that was a true blessing. Several months after Joseph passing, I met another man, a wonderful Christian man, that I truly believe that God sent. It is in my life such a blessing, and like Job a hundredfold, my life is a hundredfold better. I have a wonderful husband that loves me, supports me, encourages me. I have two wonderful, healthy, happy girls. I feel truly blessed that God did come alongside me and saw me. God has blessed me greatly with a wonderful man. That is a strong Christian. We can work alongside and bring God the glory with our ministry together. Thank you for sharing your story, Rebecca. My guess is everyone in this room 
has been through times, maybe not as severe, but you've been there. You've been in the boat, the wind and the waves beating against you, trying with all that you have to make it. The storm is a powerful reminder that you are not in control. And as Jesus approaches them on the water, they invite him in, and immediately they arrive at shore. Whatever it is this morning that you're carrying with you, whatever it is that you have been through, know that the Lord of the storm, the one who is Lord over the wind and the waves, has not lost sight of you. But it simply comes down to a question of can you surrender to him? And for those of you who have been through the storm, and you've been through the difficulty, you've been through the hard time. When we talk about this mission of engaging our world, when we talk about 2030 and what it looks like, there's a beautiful hand that has the opportunity to reach out to people who will be at one time or another where you have been. And you have the incredible ability to say yes, I've been there. I know what you're going through. But I know the I am. I I know the one who comes to us in the storms. And I know that he is there for you. And he cares for you. And he loves you. And he will walk with you through the waters. So this morning we just simply want to offer an invitation. That if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus to simply let go of what you have. And and so many, my guests, have surrendered their life, but they play tug-of-war with it. Constantly trying to get back control that you've once given up. And just to let go. If we could pray for you this morning, wherever you are, we would love to do that. We're going to have shepherds and ministry staff around the auditorium. I would love to pray with you, pray over you, pray for you in your journey and the difficulties. And maybe if you are in the storm, just simply to pray and find the words of Jesus. I am. Do not be afraid. If you've never given your life to him, we offer you that invitation as well this morning. Whatever your need, come while we stand and sing. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I Oh, for grace to trust Him.
sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust His cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me beneath the healing cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. I'm so glad I've learned to trust Thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know Jesus, 